Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 18 through 25, and we come to this incredibly rich section and encouraging section. Chapter 8 is so rich, so practical, and it helps us in our Christian walk. And it's this verse before us that is I've been longing to get to because it has, uh, to me, always seemed to just be misplaced or uh, I didn't know the transition that Paul made into this verse, and so it was fun to study it out, and now I'll get to explain it to you. Looking particularly at verse 18, when Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul had just been talking about the Spirit, Spirit-filled life, a life of hope, a life led by the Spirit, and now he transitions to our sufferings and the anticipation of the glory to come. And I always was wondering, Paul, that just seems like a very hard transition. But Paul does something amazing here in this section, is that he gives us a proper perspective of hope. I think it's important we understand this because we might have the misconception to believe that hope means that I always have joy, that I always have this excitement, that if I don't, if I'm not excited, if I'm not filled with happiness, if I'm not filled with some kind of positive element, then I must not have hope. And that whole misconception is blown up in this section of Scripture. Kind of think about the anticipation of hope or the misconception of hope. We kind of think about hope like the child hoping for Christmas. You know, December 1 hits. All of a sudden, there's this building anticipation for Christmas Day to come. The child may even create a paper chain in which they rip off each chain link each day, noticing that their hope is anticipating as they get closer to the end of that paper chain. And that's how we tend to think about hope, is we think about that excitement, that happiness, that joy of anticipating some significant event. Like a young couple who's about to get married is anticipating the wedding day, there's an increasing hope. Like a child on Christmas, like a, a, a worker who's anticipate, anticipating vacation. You always think about hope in that sense of this joy that comes. But... What we learn from this particular passage is something different. What we learn in this particular passage is one can be filled with great sorrow, great suffering, even uh, great futility, and yet be filled with hope. So that as we look at it, we can see from this section of Scripture that our hope is not measured by our happiness or the quality of our happiness, but rather our hope is measured by the persistence of our endurance, how we are able to persevere and to overcome, how we're able to endure through difficulties. That is what measures our hope. That is what proves and validates the character and the quality of our hope is how we endure through the sufferings and the difficulties of life. And that's what Paul brings out in these verses from verse 18 through 25. And to be honest, just full disclosure here, 
all of this sermon is just a setup for the points that come in the next two weeks or the next week. Because we have to set up what is happening before we see the principles that he is laying out from verses 19 through 27. He lays out the ways in which this he proves the point that's made here in verse 18. So I just want to set up this point and then we'll see his defenses in the weeks to come. What Paul has been doing here in Romans chapter 8 has been giving us a perspective of our life in the Spirit. We live in the Spirit now. We have this new principle of life within us. This principle of life that leads us and directs us. We live in newness of life, not oldness of the letter, as he says back in verse 2. It's the spirit of, of the law of life in Christ that rules within us now. And we now walk no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit, verse 4 says. Not walk, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And you go down to verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. All of this, he's giving a description of the spirit-filled life that the believer is walking in. Verse 12, he says, we are not under, we're not under obligation to the flesh. But rather, verse 13, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You live a Spirit-filled life in Christ. And he has been laying this, this theme out that we have been working our way through so that we ultimately come to the high point of his argument in verse 14 through 17 when he says in verse 14, for all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We're able to identify the people of God. We're able to identify his children by those who were led by the Spirit. So that these two themes start to become evident. The theme of a Spirit-filled life and the Spirit leading us to be in a war against the deeds of the body. And the second major theme, which is that of our sonships with God. By the Spirit, we are identified as God's children, heirs of promise, heirs of eternal life. We are children of God, and this is evident in us. Now, Paul is going to take that theme of our sonship with God, and he is going to build on it, particularly verses 18 through 25. He's building on this sonship and giving us some insight into it. And he relates our sonship particularly to sufferings and hope. And he shows us a unique insight here. And that's what I want to draw our attention to, to cover our perspective so that we have a right perspective of hope and right perspective of our sufferings. It's a fact this will become, I believe, very helpful for you and for me as we think about our own personal sufferings and difficulties in this life, to put it in a proper perspective so that we have endurance. Because I think too often times people face difficulties in life, face pressures, face the challenges of life, and now however they come upon them, and because they're not immediately filled with this joy or happiness, they think, I must have done something wrong. 
there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong maybe even with my faith. There must be something wrong that's going on in my heart that it's so hard and so difficult. There must be even something wrong with God. Maybe God's forgotten me or has turned against me. Instead, what we will learn from this particular passage is that God will take even our sorrows, our difficulties, our griefs, our frustrations, and those things don't kill our hope. They actually reveal the quality of our hope so that we are more, we're drawn more to God, drawn to his eternal riches. Particularly, so kind of getting a running start into verses 18 and following. Let's go back to verse 14 through 17. Just notice what Paul says there. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We are children of God. We belong to God. We are heirs of a promise. We are heirs which we anticipate receiving our inheritance. And as such, then, Paul builds on this and gives some implications for us. But he takes us into this kind of seemingly strange theme And is that theme of suffering at the end of verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And it's this idea of being a child of God, being led into suffering, that Paul expands on in verses 18 through 25. Now notice how he starts verse 18. He says, for I consider. I mean, We could parachute right into Romans 8.18 and just preach that verse alone. For I consider, as he says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That verse alone preaches. Like any Baptist preacher would say, that preaches is on its own. I don't need any other context. I can just launch from that. But just understanding this verse and its context adds a depth of riches to us that gives us great understanding. And that's what I want to focus our attention on this morning. Paul is calling us to the present sufferings, the sufferings of this present time. And he says here and gives us this kind of, this sober perspective to give us the kind of proper altitude to understand our sufferings and grief. Because I'm sure your heart would be just like my heart, which is this. I avoid suffering at all costs. You know, I like short lines, not the long ones. I don't want to be a long line suffering. You know, I, I want the best foods. That's why I avoid the you know, oatmeal and things like that. I go to the better foods. I mean, I don't want to suffer. I want the easy way. I want the enjoyable way. I want the way that uh, is exciting for me. So that when suffering comes, it almost seems to be irreconcilable. 
And yet there's a proper perspective of suffering that Paul draws out. And he starts it with a thinking of the mind. And notice verse 18 when he says, For I consider. We have seen this word. The word here is lagizomai. We have seen it many times in the book of Romans. It is translated to credit, to reckon, to justify. Here it is, he is saying, we consider I consider this word, logizomai, is used 11 times in chapter 4. Remember, every time was to, he credited, he was credited as righteousness, he was reckoned as righteous, he was justified, he was considered. The idea of this word is a resolved conclusion. A, a, he is, you could say like this, I am resolved, I am convinced I am certain, that's what he is stating here. He's saying, in my mind, as I view suffering, I am resolved to think of this, that this suffering is not worthy to be compared to the riches of the glory to come. I am absolutely resolved. And so Paul, in this, starts for us the very perspective that we need to have. When we head into our difficulties, when we head into the pressures of life, when we head into the uncertainties that we face, it starts with a proper perspective of the mind. How are we going to view this trial, this difficulty, this suffering? And here's what he's telling us. Here's what he has done. He looks at the sufferings and he puts them in their proper light. So what we're going to answer... Today, just to kind of set up this whole thought, we're going to set up the kind of suffering that Paul is speaking of here, and then how the Spirit of God leads us into this suffering. And these two questions should help us kind of walk through this morning's message at least. What kind of suffering is Paul speaking of here in verse 18? Notice what he says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present time, what could he be meaning by this phrase, this present time? I think he is certainly meaning by this date as he is writing, but he's speaking of that particular area. He's speaking of a time in which is post the fall, but before the coming of Christ and his kingdom. He's speaking of this time that continues on, a time that is marked by sin in the world, a time that is marked by unbelief, a time that is marked by fear and insecurity, a time that is marked by spiritual distress because you have the godless operating alongside the godly. You have this time, and when you begin to think about the kinds of sufferings that come up in this time, there are at least four categories, and I'm sure we can kind of find some more, but... There are four that I want to draw our attention to this morning. There's a kind of suffering that comes from mistreatment. There's a kind of suffering that comes from a dark providence. There's a kind of suffering that comes from temptations. And then there's a kind of suffering that comes from our own personal corruption. These are the sufferings that Paul is speaking of in this present time. Let's just look at each one of them. There's a suffering of mistreatment in this world. Every believer knows this as they walk in the light and those who are in the darkness oppose the light and they experience a suffering. 
when you have your words twisted, when you have your motives assassinated, when you have somebody who questions your character, when you have somebody who seeks to turn their wickedness into virtue and your virtue into wickedness, there is a hostility that comes that one is opposed to or experiences mistreatment in this world. But believers are not the only ones that experience mistreatment. We all experience mistreatment from the hands of others. Even unbelievers can be sinned against. In fact, I kind of laugh and, uh, whenever I do a marital counseling and you get a young couple that comes in and their eyes are so filled with this anticipation of marrying the best person in the world. They'll never sin against me. I'll never sin against them. We're going to live this perfect life together and there will be no difficulties whatsoever. And uh, most, uh, most people recognize they sin against each other before they get married and they know that that's kind of despairing. But by the time they're sitting in my office and I'm trying to tell them you're going to sin against each other, it's going to be difficult like, yeah, for someone else, not for me. And then they get married, and you recognize two sinners married each other. And a husband sins against his wife, and the wife sins against the husband, and there's difficulties, and you're having to work at reconciliation and restoration, and you're having to show mercy, and you recognize actually love is more than just the infatuation that comes when you see the person across the room. Love is is showing kindness and mercy in one who doesn't deserve it. The selfless, sacrificial, caring. Joe, we could talk later about that. (laughs) The point being is that this is the... We learn right away in marriage that people sin against us, even our closest allies. But we also live in a fallen world where there are rapes and there are murders and there are assaults and there are thefts and there are other abuses and there are mistreatment from others. And there is a great need in this world for forgiveness and for mercy, for reconciliation. It doesn't matter what culture you're a part of. It doesn't matter what race, what gender. It doesn't matter what age you are. We all experience mistreatment at the hands of others. And that brings us suffering. There's a kind of suffering that comes upon us when others mistreat us. And it is this kind of suffering that, that adds a burden to our life. I mean, when you are robbed, all of a sudden your security is threatened. When somebody cheats you out of something, when you are physically harmed, I mean, it's funny walking through the store, all of a sudden somebody can just lash out against you just because you're in the store. You've done nothing. You're looking, you know, for crackers, and all of a sudden they're yelling at you for something. It's this kind of mistreatment that creates a suffering in this world. And there's a kind of a a senselessness in this suffering in this world. In the midst of that, this is part of the suffering of this present time. It's a real suffering, mistreatment from others. You might have had that mistreatment in life where you can look back in your life and see and account details of people who have mistreated you, who have harmed you in some way, who have abused you, maligned you, have done something, and you carry that burden along. What Paul is saying is this present suffering of this time is not worthy to be compared to the glory to come. 
But I don't think it's just personal suffering at the mistreatment of others that Paul has in mind here. There's something more. The second category is that category of a suffering from a dark providence. We live in a sinful, sin-soaked world. We live in a world that is filled with groanings, with difficulties. In fact, the Bible has regularly explained that man's sin brings a curse upon the land. Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 4 says this, How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither? For the wickedness of those who dwell in it, animals and birds have been snatched away. Well, the prophet is identifying because the rebellion of the people of Israel, the land was cursed. There was difficulty. Vegetation didn't thrive. The animals disappeared. Later in Jeremiah 12, 11, it has been made a desolation, desolate. It mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate. Why? Because no man lays it to heart. The man rebels. Man's heart is in sin. God is bringing judgment, and it affects even the physical creation. God told Adam that this would be the case. In Genesis chapter 3, he told Adam that because of Adam's sin, because of his rebellion, because he turned away from the commands of God, because he resisted God's commandments and, and went after the fruit, God says in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There is a, a, a curse that has come upon the creation. Paul brings it out here in Romans 8. Notice again verses 20 through 22. It says, For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul says even the natural creation is under a curse and it is experiencing sufferings. And we will unpack more next week what that is particularly. But what we see is that we live in a creation, in a world that is under the curse of sin. And you can look around and you see this. Earthquakes, famines, thorns and thistles, Weeds, droughts. You know, I was just uh, cleaning my yard the other day, going through the weeds, and it's cursing Adam the whole time. No, I didn't curse Adam. But I recognized this was Adam's work. And of course, I added to it, so now there are more weeds around. But the whole point is that in, there is a dark providence that can lead around in this natural creation that comes upon us. We just came out of a season a few months ago with a natural disaster that upheaved many's lives. There are still some within our congregation who have not been able to move back into their homes because of the disaster, the hurricane. These providences come upon us. They change the course of our life. They affect us in significant ways. They, they cause disruption and difficulties and distress They make the simplest things more difficult because they come upon us. And then when things come upon us that uh, that 
potentially would take our life, a disease, pestilence, some kind of famine, where our very life is threatened by it, we recognize that there is a kind of suffering that comes in this. See the ravaging effects of cancer on the body. You see the ravaging effects of illnesses. When one's health is taken away and one is given a diagnosis that they too may soon die, it's in that there is a kind of suffering that comes in that season. When you come to the realization that your life has been marked and you have just a few weeks or maybe months to live and you're coming to the end and you're recognizing that you won't be able to do certain things or be there, there is a suffering and grief that comes in that moment. But I want you to understand, in the midst of that suffering and grief, when you're facing that difficulty, you're not looking for some kind of imagined or trumped up joy. Instead, you're actually fixing your eyes on exactly what Paul is stating here. You're fixing your eyes on the glories to be revealed, the glories to come. There is a real suffering that comes and a dark providence that comes upon us. And by a dark providence, I mean some natural movement that is against us. A famine, a storm, an illness, a disease, some kind of activity that is God's providence has allowed to come upon us in this fallen world. There is a kind of suffering in the midst of that. But there is a third kind of suffering, and that is the suffering through temptations. There's a kind of suffering that comes when we are tempted towards evil, tempted to be drawn into wickedness. We live in, a, in the, what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. We live in a world where one, which is controlled by the prince of the palate of the air. The one who's working in the sons of disobedience. He is working this world order, this world system, which is hostile to God. It's in rebellion to God. And this world system provokes fears. It provokes unbelief. It re- provokes rebellion. And we are constantly tempted to engage in it. <clears throat> you can hardly watch a movie, uh, watch a commercial, read a news article without seeing the ideology of the world provoking us and trying to draw us away from the things of God. And they get more and more crafty. And in the midst of this, this temptation to draw us into evil, we are tempted and we suffer in that as we are tempted to move away from what we believe and to embrace something else. We live in a world that which constantly seeks to entice us to leave the things of God to go after it. And every once in a while, in our moments of vulnerability, in our moments of despair, in our moments of unbelief, we engage in those things and then we experience the grief that comes. We experience the grief knowing that we, we knew better knowing that we ought not to have gone there, and yet we have believed or spoken or acted in such a way that we went into and embraced that temptation. And we suffer. We suffer, and I almost experience like we we suffer realizing that we have moved away from what we believed. I mean, look, there are temptations all around, even, I think about, again, Genesis 3, Eve in the garden, when the 
when the serpent is saying to Eve, look at this fruit, it's good to eat, she can look at it and she can see and she can say, yes, indeed, it's good to eat. And she can, in her natural reasoning and understanding, see that all of these things were good. There's temptation, temptation to draw us away. And again, I, I find it kind of laughable because even when we take a break, you go on vacation, you go somewhere else, temptation doesn't go on break. I mean, it's like uh, the times I love to just go on vacation and have all temptations also take a break for that week. Right? This is a free week. We get to enjoy life with no temptations or difficulties. No, it follows you even there. We long for the day again when there are no more temptations. <clears throat> we long for the day when there's perfect relational harmony. We long for the day when there's all peace. We long for the day when there is no more trials or difficulties. We long for the day, as, as Paul describes, when we will no longer have to suffer under restraining the fleshly desires. More than that, and I think while all of those are true, which add to suffering, we suffer under the, the corrupt world influence around us, we suffer under mistreatment, and we suffer under temptation, it's this last idea that is most clear from our context. We suffer under our own corruption. <clears throat> we suffer under our own personal corruption. We suffer under the battle against sin. I mean, again, you go back to verse 13. when Paul says, If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But... If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is a spiritual battle that comes against our own personal corruption that brings sorrow and difficulty. I mean, again, I think about this in the context of marriage. I married my wife, and not once did I marry her and think, I married you so I can sin against you. It was never on my mind. It was never a desire and never a want. And then it happens and like, where did that come from? Where did that selfishness come from? Where did that fleshliness come from? Where did that unbelief come from? We suffer against our own corruption, our own unbelief. We suffer against the, our own <clears throat> weaknesses, our own frailties. So we're working hard in our in our Christian walk, to strive in godliness. And as we are striving in godliness, we fall short. When we fall short, we see our weaknesses. We see the suffering that comes from that. And I think it's in that moment when we are striving to do what's right, striving to be God-honoring, striving to, to, do, uh, to be godly in the midst of a difficult situation, and then we are unrighteous, we ask these questions, Why? Why did I fall short? How long will I have to endure this? And when will I ever be delivered? When will there ever be success? When will I ever find that kind of consistency where I overcome and do the right thing? <clears throat> when will failure stop and, and success come? When will I find that kind of perseverance that overcomes and I love it because Paul says here, For I consider 
But the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. You know, how many times have you thought yourself as you're working against a particular attitude or particular practice in your life and you thought, is it worth the battle? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the striving? It's this verse that Paul gives us a context to understand it. Saying, yes, whatever suffering, whatever personal suffering you may experience right now and resisting evil, the evil of personal corruption, the glory to come is far greater. This is the context by which this passage comes out. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I was thinking about this particular verse, this reward of glory. You know, the effort of striving to do something for a particular reward and the significance of that. And I was reminded of a time back in the 2000s when one of my favorite sports teams was heading to the playoffs and they were in the finals and a local news or a local radio station put out a, um, a game. They said, if you got a tattoo of the radio station's call sign on your body, you were going to get a free ticket to the sports game. Now, of course, there are all kinds of people lining up to do that, even some people getting tattoos on their face. And uh, I thought to myself, the, the reward does not equal the cost there. The idea, some, I'm walking around the rest of my life with some kind of tattoo on my face because I got to go to one basketball game. Well, that's, the reward is not even comparable But in light of this, now, there's something different. That whatever my personal sufferings, whatever my difficulties, and wherever the category of that suffering came, whether that category of suffering came from mistreatment from others, or from a dark providence, or from a temptation, or even from a personal corruption, whatever the category of suffering I'm facing, it doesn't even compare to the glory to be revealed in Christ. It doesn't even compare. The pain doesn't compare Sorrow doesn't compare. Difficulties don't even compare. And I think, you know, in God's good providence, he's given us little indicators of this. I mean, I think about what a woman has to go through in labor and the labor pains. I think about the uh, difficulties that they go through And uh, the fact that a woman would have multiple children going through that pain multiple times, while it's real pain, that real pain is nothing compared to the glories and the joys of the child. And I had in my notes that a woman might even forget that pain, but I figured that's a very male thing to think. (laughs) So I wouldn't say it. But I think the very idea is this, in God's own providence, that he does create a difficulty that even women experience regularly, and they recognize, yeah, that's real pain, that's real sorrow, but that is a small thing compared to the glories that was to come, this little one, who is now both a child and then a friend and a co-laborer. That kind of glory overcomes the difficulties. I think about this in regards to eternity. 
what God has prepared for us, that the use of suffering, the use of difficulty that we face in life, the suffering that we may face only prepares us for the glories to come. I mean, think about each of these categories of suffering. If you suffered in the category of mistreatment from others, the glories of heaven is this. No one will mistreat you there. You're with the people of God. You're with the angels of God. You're with Christ and with God himself in eternity. There's no more mistreatment for others in eternity. Maybe you've suffered under the dark providences in eternity in when God has returned, sets up his kingdom, he restores the new heavens and the new earth. He frees creation from its burden. So that, as we're going to see next week, <clears throat> creation will be free to do exactly what God has designed it to do. And then you think, well, I suffered under temptations. No more temptations there as we're delivered. No more personal corruption there as we're given our new bodies. So when we think about the glories of heaven, all the sufferings of this side of eternity are done away with for the riches that come there. This is the riches. Paul says here in verse 18 then, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we know this. The scriptures say to us that God has prepared things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. God has prepared such riches that are beyond we can, what we can ask or imagine. So that whatever it is, the personal striving that you're having to engage in, whatever personal battle you're having to, to wrestle through, whatever personal trauma you're experiencing, a real trauma, a real suffering, a real difficulty, it does not compare to what is to come. Paul says, that is what I consider. That is what I think. That is what I dwell on. Now, what's amazing, all that's just the setup for the verses from 19 through 27. Because from 19 to 27, what Paul does is gives us three categories of groaning. He talks about the groaning of creation, the groaning of the believer, and the groaning of the Holy Spirit on our behalf, helping us through this difficulty. Creation groans right now under sin. The believer groans right now under sin, and even the Spirit groans as he has to minister in our weaknesses. So that God is able to take our personal suffering, our personal difficulties, our, our trials and difficulties and lead us through that and cause us to increase in hope. Friends, this is what is encouraging for us. That when we face those sufferings, whatever way in which they come, when we face the, even the personal battles of sanctification and being conformed into the image of Christ, when we face the personal struggles that we have against evil, whether it's internal or external coming upon us, and we face the difficulties and the distresses and we're disillusioned and we are experiencing the emotional sorrow and grief, we don't have to lose heart in those moments because we fix our eyes on the promises of God's glory. We fix our eyes on what is to come so that the sorrow isn't misplaced. The sorrow is real. And my 
Hope is not measured by the, again, the quality of my happiness. My hope is measured by the persistence and endurance of faith. Persevering through the difficulty. Because, and here's a great lesson, we're not alone in it. And we're going to see this. Even creation is involved. Notice, again, verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. Here's the incredible mystery. Because the first time I read that, I expected it to say, creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the Son, singular, of God. That's not what it says. For the sons, plural. God's creation is waiting for God's people to be revealed. God's people waiting to be manifested. He is, it is waiting for the redemptive work to be completed. We'll unpack that more next week. Here's the, whole, uh, here's the principle I wanted you to walk away with today. The end of today's message is this. You may face sorrows. You may have real difficulties. You may have a real distress. Again, come come upon you from a disease or a mistreatment or a trial of some kind. You may be even in a particular spiritual battle that's discouraging you. You're striving to be righteous and striving to honor the Lord, only falling short and feeling discouraged. But when that comes, again, while that grief comes, you want to increase your hope by fixing your eyes on the promises of God Like Paul says here, I consider you want to set your mind on those promises and anchor yourself in those promises. Not looking for some kind of peace and happiness, but looking for the fulfillment of those promises. That's what will give you endurance. That's what will make, again, eternity sweeter when all this grief and sorrow will be undone. When all this grief and disappointment are going to be wiped away and there will be fulfillment and there will be joys again. When all the creation will rejoice and all of God's people will rejoice and all of God's work will come to its fulfillment and we'll see the riches of God's glory. When we come back next week, we'll look at particularly these three aspects of groaning, the work of the creation, the groaning of of man and God's people, and then the groaning of the Spirit of God. And understand how our groaning relates to uh, our hope and anticipation. That's a fitting end, a groaning and weeping. (laughs) Have hope, young child. No. Anyways, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're so thankful that you work in us and through us, that even our sufferings are not useless, not without purpose. They are there to shape us, to shape our perspective, and can be used by you to radically transform us into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that with the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulties, you can increase our faith and grow us into the very image of Christ. 
And while we are suffering and experiencing real difficulties in this world, our hope is increasing all the more as we're anticipating the riches of your glories and seeing them. Anticipating perfect fellowship and perfect harmony and perfect communion. Anticipating seeing you and seeing your glory and understanding the riches of your grace and mercy. And indeed, we will look back and recognize the cost so small, or even now you give us small tastes of the glories to come. Even now we experience love and we experience peace and we experience joys and relationships and we experience spiritual victories and we experience in small ways the riches of the glories to come. So may this cause our faith to be encouraged and may it cause us to be resolved to persevere in our walk so that we wouldn't lose hearts and grow weary in doing good. And may we respond in encouraging one another and stimulating one another onto love and good deeds so that by the work of your body we will minister to one another and help one another in this striving. And may we not measure our hope by our happiness. May we measure our hope by the quality of our faith as we endure through these seasons. It's in that we trust you to work in us and through us. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.